Hello and welcome to Never Lick the Spoon, a brand new podcast from the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. I'm Kieran Brophy and over the course of this series, I aim to bring you some of the stories from the teeny tiny world of molecules and how they're being used to solve some of the challenges facing our planet. I also hope to highlight some of the genuinely amazing people involved in science and technology across Imperial and further afield. You can tweet us at ImperialIMSE using the hashtag NeverLickTheSpoon or NLTS if acronym soups are your type of thing. In our first episode, things take a distinctly black mirror direction as we delve into our often troubled relationship with technology. However, first, as it's London Fashion Week, we decided to cast our molecular eyes on some of the latest developments in trendy tech and, word would have it, researchers right here in Imperial are developing what are being called smart tattoos, which could mean that that tat that your mother doesn't know about <clears throat> might someday save your life. I went out to find Imperial's Backstreet Ink Parlor. Many of us today already have some form of fitness tracking band or smartwatch that could notify us about emails, calls, social media messages, and even how many steps to take before you can brag to your friends. The rapid increase in wearable tech has meant that the market is expected to be worth over $30 billion by 2020, and their uses are growing by the day. Ali Yattison, a newly arrived lecturer to Imperial from MIT, is at the forefront of this exciting field. Ali and his team of researchers look at developing medical devices and sensors that can be worn to give clinical or point-of-care diagnostics in a minimally invasive way. From room 507 of the ACE extension in the chemical engineering department, Plans are afoot that would turn an unassuming lab into something to rival Q's lair from James Bond. One of Ali's more exotic projects has been looking into the use of smart tattoos, tattoos that can change appearance depending on different stimuli from the body as medical sensors. I paid him a visit to find out more and why he had chosen tattoos. We've been working on variables over the last six years in our lab and a lot of these devices are bulky and they're based on electronics, they're costly. And we, want, we were thinking, what can we do next? You know, what is the technology that can transcend the current existing variables in the market? And we thought about a lot of options and what we realized is that tattoos could be a great platform for designing different types of chemical sensors and make these tattoos to be applicable to basically anybody. Tattoos that can monitor your health? All sounds fantastically futuristic, but what can Ali possibly hope to measure with his tattoos? In a traditional tattoo, you will basically have the ink in your skin, but in our case, our tattoos change color in response to changes in your body. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, one main application is in glucose monitoring. So this is very critical, for, especially for diabetic patients who need to maintain a tight control of their sugar levels in their body. And our sensors change colors from, let's say, green to red as the concentration of the glucose changes in your blood. And these tattoos are inked just right under the skin, so they don't have any contact with the blood samples but there's a plasma leakage from the blood and we can use this as a surrogate for estimating blood sugar uh, concentrations in this case. Another application of these 
sensors are in, for example, dehydration monitoring. So let's say you are exercising on a daily basis and you want to control the electrolyte concentration in your in your body. So in our work, we've also designed colorimetric sensors for monitoring electrolytes, such as sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium, important electrolytes in your body. Ali's harnessing the power of the everyday smartphone camera and its capacity to discern color much more sensitively than our own eyes. So we take, for example, a smartphone camera and we capture an image of the tattoo. And using this, a smartphone algorithm converts this colorimetric information to concentration values. So it can provide you information in real time. You can sense this at point of care settings when you're exercising. It's quite convenient. Also, this data can be also sent, for example, if your, your, your GP's office or your fitness uh, instructor. So it has, uh, you know, a lot of applications in specifically, we are talking about personalized medicine as well as performance enhancement for athletes as well. So it has broad applications in these areas. Pondering Ali's tattoos, I took a stroll across Hyde Park, as you do, where I just so happened to bump into Hutan Ashrafian on the St. Mary's Hospital campus. He's not only a practicing surgeon, he's also the chief scientific advisor for the Institute for Global Health and Innovation. Hutan began by giving me the 101 on how the medical world is embracing wearable technology. One of the big projects that we're doing is on sepsis. Sepsis is a condition where one's body has an a immunological reaction to a source of an, either an infection or inflammation. And that reaction can become very serious. It can shut down multiple body organs. People can die as a result. If you are, however, able to intervene on that soon enough, then it would bypass that whole process. So it's a condition that we understand well in terms of its outcomes. It's a condition that we don't understand so well in terms of its prediction or its identification in terms of speed. And the digital technology is something that could answer that gap by giving us the clues immediately as to when a patient goes off. And so we have a, a sensor that we're using uh, um, in our trial based at Imperial, but at a clinical site at West Middlesex Hospital, where we put this device that was from a company that spun out from Imperial uh, several years ago called Sensium. It's a non-invasive device that's stuck onto a patient's body. And this device is able to then identify heart rate, temperature, and respiratory rate. It is continually sending out digital signals when some of these go beyond a standard or beyond the rates that they're meant to, suddenly then the data that is given can then be acted on through an alerting mechanism. Through this digital technology, we'll also be able to uh, lead to faster interventions and ultimately save lives. So, wearable tech is already saving lives, but what does Hutan make of Ali and his wearable tattoos? Ali's work is innovative, both in terms of its technical ability, but in, the, in a practical ability that every patient has a need to be assessed in their own environment. And having a, a tool that can then assess what's going on through a patient's skin will have a beneficial effect on us understanding a human's position in, in terms of their environment and their physiology. So then the patient would give you that data rather than you having to come up with a correlation or an association about what your sampling was from the environment and how that would affect occupational health. Now you can actually go to the patient's skin directly and say, what has this 
person been exposed to and how they've been exposed to it. And that's like why, where I think Ali's work would have a powerful effect on future healthcare. So there you have it. Tattoos that look good and could provide the basis for new forms of diagnosis in the future. And just in case you're wondering where you can go to see Ali's tattoos in the flesh, he will be manning the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering stand at the upcoming Imperial Laden Wearable Technology, which takes place on February the 21st. It should make for an interesting evening, but don't come expecting a free tat. This is going to be a really exciting demonstration for us as well. We will be displaying a wide range of tattoos. Uh, we will have a tattoo artist. We will be showing tattoos that are sensitive to a wide range of analytes. So this will include, for example, our pH uh, tattoo sensors, glucose tattoo sensors. Uh, you will also see our recent work on the fluorescent tattoos. So this type of tattoos do not change color, but they change in light intensity. So they, they become brighter as the specific sort of stimuli changes in your body. Uh, so we will demonstrate that for uh, electrolyte monitoring in this event. So does that mean if I go and see your stand, I can get a free colorful tattoo? Obviously, you know, this is at the research stage, but what you will be getting is a great demonstration and a few mock samples that possibly you can even take away with you to, to show it to your friends. And that was Ali Edison and his smart tattoos. Next up, as promised, we move on to the complex relationships between humans and the technology they've created. Nowhere is this more in focus as of late than in social media. Dr. Nira Van Zalk is a lecturer and researcher in psychology and human factors at the Dyson School of Design Engineering. She looks at how technology can play a role in changing the way you feel and make decisions. I began by asking Nira why she got into the psychology of technology. My PhD was very much around anxiety, which doesn't sound like fun, but I, I think it's just a hoot. Um, and I was kind of looking at the development of adolescent anxiety. Things that particularly interest me, because my specialty is social anxiety, which is commonly known as shyness, was seeing these effects that shy people, for example, somehow shyness seems to buffer negative effects of internet on people. My research indicates that if you are a, a fun socially functioning human being and you spend way too much time online with other people, you will probably develop signs of distress over time. But if you're shy and you do the same thing, you won't. So it seems that just simply spending time with others and feeling like you're a sense of something bigger and, and you know, feeling like you're, you're part of, of somewhere, it seems that that might in itself have, have a positive effect over and above your shyness, so controlling for your shyness. If you think about a social network like Facebook, it is extremely cleverly designed in the sense that you get feedback from others and it triggers your dopamine system and it becomes like this addictive thing that you just need this validation. You want people to like your posts. And so you go into this loop, right? So from the point of view of the social network, it, it's designed perfectly, but from the point of view of you as a human being and your development and your well-being and, and your ability to regulate your emotions and whatnot, it is a horrible design. And so I'm, I'm hoping to kind of shatter some of that, to, to do more research about these types of things. I suppose we all suspected by now that social media can often be not brilliant for us. But hearing Nira say all this in such stark terms, it sounds quite alarming. But what of the future? Are we destined to become a self-obsessed, shallow breed of androids? 
I've spoken about this to my students before, and I, I do kind of tend to rant about it a bit, but I think one of the key important currencies in the future, and it's not even a far off future, is going to be attention, the ability to focus, because what we're seeing is that people are kind of losing that overall. We are continually multitasking. We're, we're never quite listening to what someone's saying. We're never quite there in the moment when we're having a meal with friends. So the connection part can be amazing if used as a tool, but if used as the way it is now, as a form of escapism, as a form of avoiding to deal with what you have to deal with in your life, as a form of alleviating boredom, that's when we're seeing these negative effects. So I think that the key thing in the future would be to design these types of platforms and teach people partially through the use of these platforms how to use them, but also retain their ability to attend to themselves and to other people, right? Because this is crucial, it's key. All the while we were speaking, I couldn't help but notice that Nira had her own smartphone out on the table, which made me wonder about her own use of social media. Does she have Facebook? and whether the findings of her own work has changed her behavior. So this is really funny that you asked me this. So I joined Facebook when I was a PhD student because it was becoming, like I said, it was becoming this big thing. And I thought, because I'm doing research on it, I need to understand how this works. So I joined it and I was on it for quite a long time, but then I became a passive member, I would say, because with me personally was that I started to notice that it really was bringing out the worst in me in the sense that be the, the capability of throwing out comments and, and making remarks about a variety of things without seeing people's immediate reaction really numbed my sense slightly of what might be an emotionally and sort of um, behaviorally appropriate thing to do. Not that I was ever horrible, but I think it did bring out some tendencies. And I started to notice this and I thought to myself, geez, I, I'd never say something like this if I was actually speaking to this person. Why am I saying it online? And then in the wake of the Cambridge analytical scandal, which is different type of discussion, which isn't necessarily linked to what I do, but uh, which has direct implications, I think, for a lot of the, the stuff that are bad in the world, such as collecting information about people that you're not allowed to do. Um, I just deleted my Facebook account entirely. I only have Twitter now, which is academic Twitter. I post almost nothing. I follow academic accounts. And I, I do find that having gotten off of it now, I've become more mindful. And I wonder if this is, this is probably something I need to do actual systematic research about. But I've, I've found that the effects are that I'm reaching out more to friends. After my conversation with Ali and his smart tattoos, I was curious to know what Nira thought of wearable technology, such as the Fitbit, from a human psychological point of view. Could it really be used for positive behavioural change? I think these things are wonderful and they can be absolutely great tools to help people identify where they're at, especially if people are unaware. So if you're trying to better your physical health or your mental health even, I think this can be a very useful starting point. What we don't know is how effective this is once you're no longer using these gadgets. So let's say that my goal is to walk 10,000 steps a day and I do this because I'm trying to make my iWatch happy, essentially. But if I'm not wearing my watch, I find that if I've not worn my watch for a couple of days, I find that this completely slips my mind, which would indicate that perhaps it's not a genuine behavioral change, that the, the change is only really linked to me using the gadget. Now, in my view, 
any effective behavioral intervention would produce a change that the person would then carry out without having to have these reminders. So I think there's wonderful possibilities, but I think we still don't know yet whether this is a real thing or not. To be honest, you could talk to Nira all day. After our ramblings on social media, our conversation meandered onto the light matter of climate change. The reason for this was all of us, uh, well, most of us, except human-made climate change is happening. But due to the fact that we can't see our impact, or we can just simply ignore our impact, it's much easier to forget it's happening. Nira had some um, pretty out there recommendations of how we can make it all seem a bit more real. Many people, when you speak rationally to them about climate change, they can be very anxious in the moment about it. Again, once you slip into your everyday life, it just kind of goes out the window. So yesterday, as I was teaching a class, I, was, I did this thought experiment with my students where I said, what if every time that you did something that was somehow linked to bad effects in terms of climate change. So let's say every time you took plastic utensils from your nearest pet instead of bringing a metal spoon with you in your bag, or every time you bought bottled water instead of carrying around water with you. What if every time you did that, I had an app installed on your phone that would show you a live puppy that, and it produced a very bad effect on the puppy and the puppy would start crying and making little puppy noises. And the assumption, of course, is that we all love puppies. And I, I asked my students, how many of you love puppies? And you know, the second I said that, people just, you could see the reaction on their faces because people were like, oh no, I, I don't want to harm little puppies because it just seems like the most horrible and totally useless thing to do, right? It's just absolutely cruel. But the reason why I used this as a thought experiment was, of course, because in this instance, what happens is, you have an immediate emotional connection is creating empathy in you and and you're feeling like I don't want this to happen. So it will probably be much easier to motivate you to make better choices. So the question, I guess, that we have to ask ourselves, how could we use some of these principles to produce an effect whereby I can feel much more in tune with the consequences of my future actions. Just saying to people and creating anxiety and, and telling them that this is bad for us is clearly producing no effects. We see similar stuff with cigarette packs and those dreadful images of you know cancerogenic lungs on them and, and people just literally buy those packs and smoke anyway. Uh, because it's so easy to ignore anxiety because anxiety is my specialty. I, I do, I, I enjoy all of these, you know, watching people in all these situations. The, the, the things that people will do to avoid anxiety, I could fill probably the world's biggest library with just bullet points of these things that we do in day-to-day -day life to avoid feeling anxious. So, how, you know, how, how do we make ourselves get out of this sort of anxiety loop into, okay, I'm going to do this because this actually makes me feel better and I feel like I'm contributing to something. I, I think that's, that's the challenge. Nira Van Zalt there with an unusual approach to making climate change seem a bit more real, from the human perspective at least. Congratulations, you've made it through an entire episode without falling asleep. Well, maybe you have. If you would like to hear more, please do subscribe to the podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and always remember, never lick the spoon!